Welcome to the On The Green Podcast, where we'll give you the latest news and events from the world of golf and spotlight golf courses from around Northeast Florida and the First Coast. We'll take you inside the ropes with interviews, strategies for playing the courses, and get a tip from the head professional. Each show will also feature an interview with a prominent golf insider. They'll share firsthand stories and insights you won't hear anywhere else. Now, here's your host of On the Green, Tim Eiley. Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Green Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Eiley. We're coming to you from Studio Podcast Suites here in Jacksonville, Florida. You can find this podcast on your favorite podcast platform or check us out at our website, onthegreenconsulting.com. There you can also find my monthly blog, which I hope you'll enjoy. Now, this is my first endeavor into a series of highlight shows where we're going to take a look back at some of the most memorable interviews and moments of the past three years of On the Green Podcast. On today's show, we're going to look back at episode 13, featuring a conversation with World Golf Hall of Fame member Amy Alcott. It's going to be a great show, so welcome to the 39th edition of On the Green Podcast. Now, we're going to start off this highlight series again with Amy Alcott. Now, Amy is an LPGA Hall of Famer and has quite the impressive resume. I knew you, I knew you were good, but I didn't realize how good. You, you've won 33 times around the world, five major championships, 12 straight years with at least one tournament win, which is incredible. The Vair Trophy winner in 1980 for the lowest scoring average. Obviously, LPGA and World Golf Hall of Fame member, but you're also a writer, a golf course architect, an entrepreneur, a speaker. Now, according to Amy, in order to become an accomplished golfer, you need to be consistent. Well, you got to stay busy, Tim. What can I say? I think in that that whole resume that you said, uh, one of the – things I'm the most proud of was, um, was the consistency I had, you know, when you mentioned that I, uh, it brings me back to, um, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, that's, that's the key in golf sure. consistency and to win, like I did 12 straight times. Uh, I guess I wasn't a fluke. Oh no, <laughs> but, no, no, but, no. But, but, but what uh, what uh, strikes me the most is that you know um, golf is just a game like that. It's a game of maintaining a level of consistency. If you're consistent, you will be successful. And so I think I'm most proud of the fact that I hung in there and was pretty good every year for at least 12 years. I think it was some record I believe that was tied with Nicholas had done that, but, um, I'm not sure. How did Amy get her start in golf? You ask, let's hear from her now. Well, I was, uh, a child of television like most young kids are. And I think I sensed maybe I didn't sense it, but I was very much my own person, very much a loner. And I would watch the cartoons on Saturday and then golf would come on the CBS golf classic. Shell's Wonderful World of Golf, Big Three Golf. I'm gonna. I'm dating myself <laughs> with a guy, mostly guys playing. Ninety nine point nine percent guys playing, and uh, you know, with strange names like Kermit Zarley and Mike Suchak and 
Right. People like that. And I watched it swing, and it, it was different than being a tomboy on the street that I grew up in in the West LA area, you know, playing with the boys and everything. I was watching this beautiful dance step and, and trying to hit a stationary ball versus a tennis ball or, or carrying a football or hitting a softball. Um, and I, I, I had more and more questions and it really, it really was something that I absolutely had to, you know, figure out. So, my dad, I asked my dad if he had any, I was that young, that eight, had any of those sticks that push the ball and those white balls. Oh, my gosh. And he had, my parents were not golfers, which is pretty interesting. Nobody in my family played golf. Um, and he had bought my mom a set of clubs, I guess, at one time when they were married, thinking maybe she'd take it up. And he cut me a club down about, I don't know, 25 inches mm-hmm. um, with duct tape on it. And I went out in the front yard and the sprinkler head started pushing the balls in the sprinkler heads. And then I was obsessed. And that grew up eventually within a year to a junior set of clubs and putting on the front yard into soup cans that I would put in the sprint yard and mm-hmm. chipping golf balls out of the Ivy. And my dad built a sand trap in the front yard and we used to go to the uh, lumber company and fill it up with sand. Cause I hit so many shots over the sidewalk onto the front lawn. Oh my gosh. And, and so that was in the neighborhood that became known as the Alcock golf and country club. <laughs> <laughs> we also learned on the podcast that Amy turned professional at a very young age. I turned pro right out of high school. Um, a lot of people weren't rooting for me to do that. I had asked some people with the USGA at the time because I was the U.S. junior champ, and and they were all giving me advice. Oh, Amy, you're a young girl. you got to go off and go to at least get a college education and play college golf. But that didn't seem for me. So I was going to just go off and kind of – branch out on my own. And that's really what I did. I went to the qualifying school um, yeah, right out of high school, 1970, uh, 1975. And um, barely qualified. Um, I think there was a lot of pressure on me at that qualifying school. I think I was the last qualifier and I was expected to be one of the top ones. And from then on, I ran to the telephone when I qualified. I ran to the phone, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I found my, my little oyster here. I said, it's all going to be downhill from here, meaning all the pressure was off once you qualified. Right. I, was gonna make the mo- I was going to make the most of it. So that was uh, January of 1975. Now here, Amy explains how she paid the bills when she first got her LPGA tour card. Fifteen people that put up a thousand dollars apiece for me to go on the tour. Oh wow! I couldn't. I couldn't begin to play five tournaments now for that, but I played something like almost everything. Thirty-six events for you know for the first two years, uh, and then was able to pay them back. 
Amy may have been the youngest player on the LPGA Tour, but that did not stop her from winning her first event in just her third career start. Uh, won the Orange Blossom Classic. Total purse, $35,000. Mm-hmm. 1975. And I won it on my 19th birthday, February 22nd, 1975. That was my first tournament win. Well, there's, there's a big a happy birthday. and made a 25 footer on the last hole to win. I didn't know. I I didn't want to look at the leaderboard, but my life, my life changed very quickly. Having won five LPGA majors in her career. I asked her how that first one at the Peter Jackson invitational, how did, how did that stand out? Well, it was in Montreal at um, the Peter Jackson classic. It was, Kind of the first year of that particular event became a major, um, and we played at uh, a golf course called Richelieu Valley Country Club. Very challenging course in Montreal. They have several great courses there, mm-hmm. and I remember that week distinctly because I had the flu and I had a hundred degree temperature, and oh. I was very close to with withdrawing, and. Um, I think I was on the phone with my mother, who, uh, again, was not a golfer. And she says, honey, you know, you should really, you know, not play and just come home. And I said, no, I, I just think, you know, that, you know, if I can make it around, I'm going to play. And then she said to me, you know, they always say, beware of the sick golfers. Oh, you know, definitely. Because you're, you're. You know, you have no expectations. And it was a, an amazing week. I ended up uh, walking on the 18th green, which was a short par five, went for it in two, and had like about a 70-foot eagle putt. And I was, I think, one or two shots ahead of Nancy Lopez, who was playing in the group behind us, and we were tied. And I looked at that putt, coming downhill with the crowd there, all the French Canadians. And uh, I said, well, let's see if I could just kind of get it within a bucket. And I hit like the most perfect putt and knocked it in the hole. It was, went crazy. Um, the crowd went nuts for an Eagle on the last hole. And um, I think Nancy, I don't know. I believe she part or bogeyed the hole, but anyway, I was the winner. And I, I gotta tell you that with all the screaming people uh, in the crowds, that was yelling in French. That was pretty exciting. And to be sick and to do it, I got well pretty quick. She won three of her five majors at what we fondly call the Dinah Shore, and the first one coming in 1983. That was a very unique golf tournament. Um, I mean, the unsung hero in women's golf during the early 80s who really put golf on the map was a guy named David Foster who ran Colgate Palmolive. And he really put his money where his mouth is. I mean, he uh, he put on not only the 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 disc, uh, sorry, the Colgate Dinah Shore tournament with Dinah Shore. It was like the tournament in women's golf. It was the masters of women's golf. You had a, a great venue. You had a great sponsor. You had Dinah Shore. 
you had the celebrities. Um, everybody wanted to play, finish in the, the eligibility was you had to finish in the top three, I believe, or the top five just to get into the Dinosaur Tournament. It's still called the Dinosaur, even though it's the ANA inspiration. Many people still call it the Dinosaur. Including I me. get letters. <laughs> yeah, I get letters from people. And um, so to, wit, to be eligible for that in 1975, after I won that tournament in the Orange Blossom, I became immediately eligible to play that year. Um, in the in the Colgate Dinosaur, so to and I played pretty well that first year. But in '83, I played really well and won my first one um, there at Mission Hills. So I will always remember that. And here's an interesting fact: Did you know that Amy was the first champion to jump into Poppy's Pond after her Dinosaur win in 1988? Now, that was a tradition that carried through all the way to 2022. Well, um, it wasn't called Poppy's Pond there. I mean, it's a great finishing hole. Uh, Desmond Muirhead design course, uh, one of the greats, worked with Nicholas and all uh, many years ago. But um, Mission Hills 18th is one of the best. And um, I win the tournament in the wind, get a great shot into 18. And I think I had said early in the week to my caddy, just in passing, um, has anybody ever like jumped in the water or what would it be like or something crazy like that? It was just a passing thought. And when I made the putt, I looked at Bill Curry, who worked for me, and I said, Bill, we're going in the water. <laughs> and I, I didn't take very long look to see that there were rocks in there and uh, bird droppings <laughs> and how, or how, how deep it was right. or how dirty it was. And we just, uh, we just jumped in there and it affectionately, I didn't have no idea what I had created, but it was a moment of grabbing my excitement and my enthusiasm. And I could not believe how, the response I got from, from that, it was really an amazing, an amazing thing to create that. How important is being a hall of famer to Amy? Here's what she had to say. Well, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's nothing I ever aspired to. I didn't even know there was a hall of fame until, um, oh, about four years before five, four or five years before I was inducted. Somebody came up to me, I think it was the commissioner of the tour, and said, um, you know, if you keep going like this, you're going to get into the Hall of Fame. But I think, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with, you know, the genesis of the Hall of Fame. Uh, there's, a, there's a category that if you're a PGA pro, what, what the uh, expectation is, and then with the women, the LPGA Tour, it was an archaic system of, of Hall of Fame induction. Um, the qualification was like uh, something like 30, 40 events with no majors, 35 events 
with one major, 30 tournaments with uh, two majors. Well, I had won five majors and um, was holding on 29 tournaments. I held, I had one more golf tournament I had to win. And the pressure, it really made me not enjoy golf very much because I'd show up for years, for about a year, when are you going to win? Are you going to win this week? You know, you know, are you going to win one more tournament to get in the Hall of Fame? And I knew that was that wasn't going to define me. I already knew what kind of golfer I was. Was it going to change who I was or that I was a Hall of Famer? She also shared with us the call that she received from uh, her fellow Hall of Famer Joanne Carner in 1990 that she was in the Hall of Fame. And so I think I'd come in from the grocery store and I, my phone rang and they were, they said, uh, we're, we have this committee. We've just voted on new hall of fame criteria. And we want you to know that you've been inducted. You will be inducted into the hall of fame. You will be the first person under the criteria, new criteria, which is a point system. We discovered during the course of our interview that Amy has helped design several courses around the world, including the Olympic course in Rio. You know, you became an entrepreneur at eight years old, um, <laughs> but uh, you're also, you know, you're an entrepreneur today, obviously, and you're also mm-hmm. a golf course architect. And I'm sure some of our listeners may not realize that you partnered with Gil Hands on the golf course in Rio. Yes, I did. Um when I saw that golf was, was going to be in the Olympics, which was very exciting to see, and so much effort was put into it by, you know, our former commissioner, Ty Vota, and a whole committee of people with the LPGA, I know for sure, to get that passed and for golf to become a part of the Olympics. Um, I thought, looking at it, it was going to be in Rio that, you know, I don't had no idea what golf course they were going to play, but I love design. Um, to call myself a actual architect, uh, they're a jack of all trades. You know, but I've learned a lot, and I'm not a golf architect, but I'm. I think I'm a very good golf consultant with all the courses that I've played. Um, I thought, thinking out loud, that the golf course should be designed by a male and female team. And that's when I approached Gil about the idea. Amy is also a published author of two books, Winning at Golf, and most recently, Leaderboard, Conversations on Golf and Life. Uh, It was a series of interviews with all kinds of people who love golf and icons of entertainment and industry and why golf changed their life, why they play. I wanted to ask the questions that I have been asked in the press room by people, so... So as you just heard, Amy has led an extraordinary life and continues to give back to the game that she loves. To hear the entire podcast, tune in to episode 13 on your favorite podcast platform or on my website, onthegreenconsulting.com. We'll be right back. Well, that's all the time we have for this show. I really appreciate you listening and hope you let all of your friends and colleagues know about the show as well. And don't be shy about submitting a review of the show on Google or your favorite podcast platform. I hope you enjoyed the first highlight show of our series as we look back at the first three years of On the Green Podcast. 
I can't thank all my guests enough over the years for taking time to be on the show. Now, all 39 shows can be found on your favorite podcast platform or on my website, onthegreenconsulting.com. And if you have ideas for future shows, please send me an email, tim at onthegreenconsulting.com. I'm your host, Tim Eiley, and until next time, try to keep it in the short grass. <laughs>